We are suspicious of authority. We don't trust claims to power and control. And look, sometimes we have reason for that. We have all seen authority get abused at times. We've seen people in authority that we really didn't like. We've seen rules that we didn't like or even rules that we just simply didn't want to follow. When I was in college, I'm going to say this, I promise I had a few friends, but senior year, I was in Walmart, and I saw one of those little, those Razor scooters like I used to have as a kid, and not like the electric ones, but the fold-out ones, and I decided, you know what, I know you're not supposed to ride these scooters like in the buildings and all that stuff, but I'm going to do it. I got that scooter, I would ride it from my apartment onto campus, I would get in the building, I would ride it down the hall, I'd climb up the stairs, I would ride it to my seat. It was ridiculous. But it was kind of like, again, I wasn't someone that ever got in trouble. I was always, I was never rebellious, but that was like my little rebellion. My biggest rebellion ever was riding a scooter to my seat. And I share that because we like control, even in something dumb. I I enjoyed, it was the first time in my life, really, where I was doing something and people were like, you're going to get in trouble for doing that. And I'm like, yeah, it's fine. I'm going to do it anyway. That was why I was doing that. It was like my little way of being rebellious, my little way of not submitting to authority. But no matter what our attitude is, the world remains full of authority. Individuals and institutions control our lives. We still report to our bosses. If I was told to stop riding my scooter down the hall, I would have listened. When you're driving down the road and those police lights come on behind you, I would hope you don't run. You probably pull over. We still submit to our government and its laws, whether we like it or not. But what we see today is that the authority of Jesus is not like earthly authority at all. The authority of Jesus is unquestionable. And we see this in Luke 20, 1 through 18. So let's go ahead and read that. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the, vine, uh, of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. 
Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Dear God, as we come and open your word this morning, God, I pray that you speak through me. God, I pray that you help us to see the context that, you know, of where this was originally written as Luke was writing this, God. But also we pray that you help us to see what you are saying to us today. God, we pray that you open up this scripture to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem was grounded upon two landmark displays of authority. The first was his triumphal entry when he rode into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey amid the praise of the crowds. The second was the cleansing of the temple when he drove out the money changers. And now he spends his last days before he is arrested and crucified teaching in the temple. And so we see in verses 1 through 8, the first half of our passage this morning, Jesus' authority is challenged. Jesus is here, he's spending these last days uh, teaching in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, they are not impressed. And they represent the center of political power in Israel. They are convinced that Jesus must be eliminated. But instead of rejecting Jesus' authority outright, they think that they can undermine him by questioning him. Basically, They see the triumphal entry. They see the temple cleansing. And now they see the teaching and they think and they ask, what gives you the right? Under whose authority are you doing this? Because it surely did not come from us. But we know that Jesus was the authority. We see in verses 3 through 6, he answers them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they come together, they discuss it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all of the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. If John was from God then he was right in proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. And if he was right about that, if that was true, then Jesus had all authority. And so there's a problem for the chief priests and the scribes here. You see, they did not believe that John was from God. But, the, but John, the Baptist was, John the Baptist was a popular hero. So they didn't believe that he was from God, but he was popular. This is a problem. Many people had received his baptism of repentance as they confessed their sins, but not the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. They were absent from this large group that received this baptism of repentance. And earlier in his gospel, Luke explained in Luke 7, 29 and 30, 
When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. So here's their predicament. If they said that this baptism was from heaven, they would be admitting that they had sinned in rejecting this baptism. Even worse, they would have to admit that Jesus was the Messiah because John had announced that. There was no way that these leaders would consider for a moment that Jesus was the Messiah, and they certainly would not admit to their being sinners. But they also couldn't tell the truth, that they reject Him because they fear that the people would turn against them. They fear that the people would stone them. So suddenly the tables are turned, and their authority is being questioned. So they they get this question from Jesus. They gather together out of fear, and they come out with the proper political response. We don't know. We don't know whether John's ministry was from God or whether it was merely human. We don't know. Now, we know what they actually believe. We know that they actually believed that John's ministry was not from God, but their answer stems from their fear of what the people would think if they were honest. But by confessing that they don't know, they have proven that they have no capacity to decide on spiritual matters. And so Jesus refuses to tell them his source, the source of his authority. These leaders couldn't answer honestly because they knew that it would make them look bad. Have you ever, and try to give an illustration of this, have you ever bought cable or had the cable providers call you and give you a pitch? When I was in North Carolina, I, I lived out in the middle of nowhere, and so our only internet option was through the cable company. So I used to get this a lot. You would get that, you, you'd get the call to set up, they'd say, do you want a bundle? Here's what we can do with cable, and they would tell you the price for the first year. And it was a pretty good price. They never mentioned what the price was in year two. And so you would ask, and then they would tell you it's like three times as much. It was always way more than I could afford. And so it never ended up working out. But I talk about this because that real price of that year two commitment, it's twisted in order for that sale to be made. They tell you this is what you pay in year one. It looks really good. the, The truth is kind of twisted a little bit. It makes it, it makes it more palatable. It makes it easier to sign on that dotted line. You see, these leaders, they lacked courage. And we often lack courage to tell the truth as well. It's why we try to spin things, whether that's selling cable or, or anything else, and just talking and, and having within relationships. Being completely honest can be difficult. And often we fear people more than we fear God. It's important that we ask the Lord to give us courage to speak the truth no matter what people think. Because we see here in this passage, Jesus' authority is unquestionable. No one can outwit him. The religious leaders show that their authority, it's not genuine. 
With one question, Jesus exposed the spiritual emptiness of Israel's religious authorities. If you don't know where authority comes from, then surely you can't actually have any. And so by that one question, Jesus demonstrated that all of Israel's religious authorities were unqualified to question his authority. If they couldn't tell the difference between a prophet and a mere man, how could they tell the difference? How could they judge the the Son of God when he came? How could they judge the difference between the Son of God and a mere man? When we meet Jesus, we meet a person with unquestionable authority. Mere men cannot challenge the Lord's right and ability to teach and to rule. And it brings us to a good question, a good question to apply this to ourselves. Do we question or do we recognize Jesus' authority in our own lives? Jesus follows this first section here with the chief priests and the scribes and the elders with a parable on rejected authority in verses 9 through 18 or 19, really. And so, if you were here and you were thinking that Jesus kind of evaded this question of authority in the previous debate, here in the parable of the wicked tenant farmers that immediately follows, it demonstrates that he forthrightly asserts his authority. Jesus' story employs an image that everyone would have readily understood, and this was a vineyard representing Israel. Israel thought of itself as the vineyard of God, and a number of scriptures make that allusion. But the most famous is the song of the vineyard in Isaiah 5, 1 through 7. And there, Isaiah describes God's loving care for his vineyard, his disappointment with the vineyard because it had yielded only bad fruit, and finally, his judgment over it and his mourning over it. This vineyard and Israel connection It was so much a part of their national consciousness that the very temple in which Jesus was standing sported this massive, richly carved grapevine that was sculpted around the door that led from the porch to the holy place. The the branches, the tendrils, (coughs) and the leaves were made of the finest gold. And these bunches of grapes that were hanging on these golden limbs were made of costly jewels. So this vine had immense sacred meaning in the eyes of the Jews. So with this context in mind, Jesus had everyone's attention and everyone's understanding as he begins this parable of the wicked tenant farmers. But whereas Isaiah's song of the vineyard was about the failure of the vineyard, Jesus' parable would be about the failure of the leader's of the vineyard, the failure of the leaders of Israel. And just to make sure that they understood it, Jesus gives them an allegorized parable. So we see the man is God the Father. The vineyard is Israel. The tenant farmers are Israel's leaders. The servants are the prophets. And finally, the son is Jesus. So we see in the beginning, in verse 9, this authority is entrusted. Jesus begins easily enough. 
a man planted a vineyard and let it out to the tenants, and he went into another country for a long while. Clearly, this meaning was that God established Israel as his vineyard. He put it in charge of spiritual leaders, as seen in the parable by, as the tenant farmers. And he didn't show his presence for a long time. The longer that God was gone, the more remote and powerless he seemed. And so these tenant farmers began to assume that his absence was permanent. They began to feel that the vineyard, that Israel, was in fact theirs. It was their possession. And so we see in verses 10 through 15, this authority is violated. Because when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him. They sent him away empty-handed. So he sends another. Sends another servant. But they also beat him. They treat him shamefully. They send him away empty-handed. So they send a third. And you might probably guess what they did to him. They also wounded him. They cast him out. This trio of beatings summarizes Israel's treatment of its prophets. Stephen, in Acts 7, 51 and 52, before his stoning, referenced this when he shouted to the Sanhedrin, "'You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute?' Elijah was driven into the wilderness by the monarchy. Isaiah, according to tradition, was sawn in two. Zechariah was stoned to death near the altar. John the Baptist was beheaded. As Hebrews 11, 37 and 38 summarizes, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. As Jesus' Jesus' parable says, all of this was done because Israel's leaders wanted to keep that vineyard for themselves. They held onto it as tight as they could, and no one was going to take that from them. God's prophets were threats to the profitable status quo, so they had to be removed, and they did their best to remove them. In verses 13 to 15, we see finally the outrage in the parable peaks to the ultimate violence. It says, then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. These tenants were not going to allow for any possibility that this land could be claimed by its owners. And it's possible that the appearance of the son would have made them think that the father was dead. And so that makes it even easier. If we just kill the son, the whole thing's ours. In the parable... The leadership of Israel was portrayed as going as far as murder to maintain their authority. And we know that they would go as far as murder 
to maintain their authority. And the son that they would murder was Jesus. We must not miss the huge distinction that Jesus makes between himself and the prophets and the religious leaders. The prophets were the servants, but he was the son. The leaders were tenants, but he was the heir. He was the joint owner with the father. And within the week, they would murder the Son of God. Yet this allegory is rooted in God's love. In the face of Israel's hard-heartedness, He continued to persist. One prophet after another was abused, but He continued to persist. Martin Luther once said, If I were God and the world had treated me Him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? And you think if, if, if we were God and the world treated us as it treated Him, I mean, God could easily have just given us what we asked for. It doesn't end well. He could have just destroyed it all. We deserved it. But instead of turning His back on the world What God did was He continued sending servants. Insults and beatings, they didn't stop Him. And finally, He sent His Son. As Charles Spurgeon said, if you reject Him, He answers you with tears. If you wound Him, He bleeds out cleansing. If you kill Him, He dies to redeem. If you bury Him, He rises again to bring resurrection. Jesus is love made manifest. We see as we pick up the passage here, the end of verse 15 through 16, there was also a terminal severity awaiting these unrepentant leaders. Jesus poses the question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And his answer is, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. We see that our attempts to challenge Jesus' authority fail. And this was partly realized by the national judgment that took place at the destruction of Jerusalem in the year 70. But the ultimate reference is to eternal judgment for Israel's leadership and the reassignment of leadership to a people who were mostly Gentile. We see that recorded in the book of Acts. The religious leaders will lose their authority. The kingdom will be given to the Gentiles. Now, this is not to say that the Jews would be excluded from the kingdom, but Israel would never again be as prominent in God's purposes and plans. The religious leaders hearing Jesus, they would have definitely understood what Jesus was saying, and we know that because of their answer. Jesus tells them this, He says this in this parable, and they say, surely that wouldn't happen. It's, it's unthinkable to them that this would be the case. But Jesus does what anyone should do if they're trying to win a debate or an argument. Jesus knows his sources and he cites them. He cites scriptures on rejected authority. So in his answer, Jesus took them to the Scriptures to show that the rejection rejection of his authority, his subsequent exaltation, and judgment upon those who rejected him was clearly taught throughout the Old Testament. 
And in each of the scriptures that he quoted, Jesus is the stone. And then we get to this quotation of Psalm 118. Nearly everyone recognized Psalm 118 as messianic. And that's why the Pharisees strongly objected when the crowd applied it to Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem. Back in Luke 19, 38 and 39, when the people quote Psalm 118, 26, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees look into the crowd and they said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And now, after telling the parable, Jesus again directs them to Psalm 118. When the leaders protest that the kingdom could never be removed from Israel, Jesus looks them directly in the eyes and he asks, Well, what then does Psalm 118.22 mean when it declares that the stone rejected by the builders has become the cornerstone? In the historical context of Psalm 118, the builders who rejected the stone were Gentiles, and the stone was the Davidic king. The whole narrative arc of the psalm is how the king triumphs over his opponents by God's help. But now, the psalm is appropriated in an astonishing way. The builders who reject the king, the builders that reject the sun, the cornerstone, this is the Jewish leaders. Jesus is the cornerstone of God's new temple, and if the leaders reject Him, then they forfeit their place in the people of God. Israel has rejected God's Son, but God made that Son the cornerstone of this new temple at the resurrection. And by rejecting the cornerstone of God's new temple, the risen and exalted King, they have sealed their fate. If they fall and stumble over the cornerstone, they will be smashed to pieces. And if the stone falls on them, they will be decimated. The prophecy of Isaiah 8.14 is fulfilled. The Lord will be a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The farmers, they think that they're ridding themselves of this vineyard owner. They think that they're ridding themselves of His Son, but in fact, they're destroying themselves with their actions. Jesus makes it clear that the authority He has as God's Son is from the Father. He implicitly claims to be the Messiah, the King of Israel, and the Son of God in this parable. And we see in this parable that Jesus' authority is unparalleled. And His authority comes from the Father Himself. Those who reject Him as Lord will face judgment and be excluded from God's presence. Now, do you think that the chief priests and the scribes and the elders got the message? They absolutely did. We see in verse 19, they, they got the message so much that their desire was to lay hands on Him right then. But again, they don't do what they desire because they fear the people. They understood the parable well. They understood its implications. But tragically, they didn't believe it for a second. They set themselves to fulfill the parable to the letter, to throw him out of the vineyard and to kill him. In this passage, Jesus has his authority challenged and quickly shows that his authority cannot be challenged, it cannot be questioned. 
In his ministry, Jesus preached the gospel with authority. This is what he was doing in the temple. And he displayed that authority. Early in his ministry, he displayed his authority to forgive sin when he said to the paralytic, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. He now forgives sin with ease because he bore the unfathomable burden of our sins on the cross. He also has authority to give spiritual life. As we see, as John explains in John 1, 12 and 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right, that is authority, to become children of God who, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He has all authority, and he passes it on to all who take his name to the world. Matthew's gospel concludes in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, a very familiar passage. With Jesus, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." From the bottom of the sea to the end of the expanding universe, from the depth of hell to the heights of heaven, all authority belongs to Jesus. Jesus is essential. There's no way to build your life without Him. There's no way to enter God's vineyard without Him. So you must not stumble or fall on the stone. You cannot survive if the stone falls on you. The only safe way to live is to stand on the stone, to build on it, to make it the foundation of your lives, to make Jesus the foundation of your lives. And you do that by believing the gospel and following Jesus as your Lord with all authority over you. Church, this cornerstone is the foundation of our entire existence. Without Christ as the chief cornerstone, there is no building. Ephesians 2, 20 and 21 tells us that we were built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple of the Lord. So we close with a question this morning. What is Jesus to you? Is he an impediment or is he your master? Have you surrendered to Jesus' authority? Is he your Lord? As we go to pray and to worship, let me encourage you. If you desire for Jesus to be your authority, to be your Lord, don't let another day pass before trusting in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you would like to talk about salvation today, or even if you have questions about the sermon or questions about the service, 
We would love to talk to you about that. We would love to talk more about the authority of Jesus. Myself and Pastor Ben, both of us would love to talk to you in person, and also you can do that if you, if you prefer by emailing us at connect at seafordbaptist.com, but we would love to talk to you about that. Let's pray. Dear God, again, we thank you for the chance to come 